Hey there, my name is Patrick Rothfuss, and this is the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Well, we have one of those new talking machines. Now that is something. It plays music right here in our home. Progress is something we can't take for granted. Progress takes a lot of people wanting it and willing to work for it. You are listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. This week on the show... Christopher did the last unicorn in German, German being one of the five or six languages he spoke, and on television. And Christopher was saying in that grand Christopher Lee voice that you can't keep imitating after you've been around him for 15 minutes. Oh yes, I simply couldn't resist the chance to play King Haggard one more time, even in another language, because let's face it, it's the closest they'll ever let me get to playing King Lear. And my jaw dropped, and they swung the camera toward me to get my reaction, and Christopher looked across the studio at me and winked. Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Sherry Sondheimer. Welcome back to another episode of the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com. You can find us wherever you find your podcasts, uh, whether that be Google Play, iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, wherever you find us, you can find us there. Just search our name. You can find us on the socials at thegbbpodcast. I am your host, Jamie Green. As always, you can find me at The Roarbots. And joining me is Shiri. You can find me at SW Sonheimer on Twitter and irate underscore Corvus on Instagram. How have you been? I have been okay. This week, I'm just going to cut right to it. So this week, we're bringing you an interview that we actually did several months ago. But we have been sitting on it because of an imminent release of... A couple of new books, actually, but this this was a this was a fun one, and I have to say this was the second time that I've had the pleasure of uh, talking to Peter Beagle, and he is charming. I think is the right. Oh, he tells <laughs> the best stories. Yeah, he's like, and this time I met Christopher Lee, and we were both doing the audio equivalent of sitting there with our mouths hanging open. <laughs> yeah, I think there was uh, probably a number of moments where he finished talking and you and I were both just still sitting there in silence and we were like, oh, oh we're supposed to ask something now. <laughs> it's because we were just soaking in the stories that he was sharing and the experiences that he's had. For those of you who are unfamiliar, you probably are familiar with The Last Unicorn. Peter Beagle wrote the original novel, The Last Unicorn, on which the, I guess cult favorite is it could you call it a cult favorite i mean it's kind of a favorite an 80s favorite at this point yeah i think you could call it a cult favorite um because i think it's one of those books that it it's a it's a kid's book Mm -hmm. um but i think with the more modern parenting sensibility i think probably less children who are children now have read it um, yeah. Because even going back to read it, I thought, oh, 
oh, I, I read this as a child. It's dark. And we did talk to him about that. Um, yeah. Just like we talked to Victoria Schwab about horror in children's books. We we spoke to Peter about that for a while as well and why that's important, um, why that's an important element in children's books. But I think fewer kids have read it now than, say, people our age, 40s. Yeah. Um, we all read it when we were kids. Yeah. Or we were exposed to the animated film and that then led us maybe back to the to the book or the source right. material. But the the Rankin Bass animated movie has been kind of pervasive. Mm-hmm. It's been one of those movies, but it but it goes in waves of popularity, I think. Like the um like the Hobbit one. Yes. Yes. <laughs> the animated Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, yes. Uh, and it's if you go back and watch it now, I'm not gonna lie, it's a little bit dated. It might not hold up. I sat down with my kids and they enjoyed it, but it's not one of the films that they've asked to watch again. Mm-hmm. It, uh, you can tell that they were working with maybe limited budgets, or the animated, the animation style and technology hadn't really met, caught up to what they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. But it's still one of those 80s animated classics that people our age really remember fondly. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you were talking there about how dark it is. And I have, you know, our, our list of notes and questions open in front of me. And you had pulled out a quote that I think is really pertinent to that. And it's great heroes need great sorrow and burdens or half their greatness goes unnoticed. And I think that's core to this darkness that we were talking about with both Peter and mm-hmm. Victoria Schwab because so many books, shows, films, what have you today that are marketed to kids today are really just your heroes are heroes. They have heroic qualities, but we don't really know why they became heroes or we don't see maybe negative effects of of their life. You know what I mean? I mean, does that make sense? Right. It does. And like, it, it doesn't all have to be, you know, baby Bruce Wayne, right. Watching his parents get slaughtered in an alley, but the, well, and also it's, you know, Victoria mentioned it's something that helps kids get through the darkness in the actual world Mm -hmm. is seeing young people, defeat it in in their fiction yes and and just simply recognizing that it exists Mm -hmm. you know that somebody can be a hero or a good guy or somebody you look up to while also having these difficulties and challenges that they have overcome Mm -hmm. you know not everybody is just born a hero or a protagonist and has the perfect life and seeing that I think is is really important for kids to see in the characters that they read about or watch on TV. Mm-hmm. And and that you don't give up when things are hard. Yeah, absolutely. Peter has written a lot more than the Last Unicorn. Obviously, I think that is what he is probably best known for. He uh, he wrote the book fifty years ago. Believe it or not, it's hard to believe that it's been around for that long. The uh, there's especially since I'm sorry, Jamie. You know, Jamie mentioned that the animation is dated, but there's a new, relatively new, 
uh, graphic novel of the story. That's exactly, that's exactly what I was going to say now. Oh. <laughs> and the story is not dated. No. Some books date. This one did not. Yeah. Not so really. The graphic novel, it was IDW who put it out. And it's a graphic novel adaptation of the novel, not the film. So if you go into it only knowing the film, you might not recognize some of what happens in the in the graphic novel or some of the, the characters or the character traits that they exhibit. But it, you're right. It absolutely holds up. The story holds up. The graphic novel adaptation is phenomenal. I would really recommend if you've never read the book, I would write, you know, if you're not either, either you're not a book reader or you don't have time to add a whole novel to your list or what have you definitely check out the graphic novel because it is, it's remarkably well done. The art is beautiful. Yeah, it really is. Um, But like I said, he is a lot more than the last unicorn. He's written a bunch of different books. Not all of them are about unicorns. Um, he, we talked quite a bit about, he wrote a fine in private place when he was a teenager. That was, I think probably the first major thing that he wrote. He came back to uh, unicorns much later in life, uh, relatively recently, just a few years ago, he had a novel called in Calabria, which also, uh, featured unicorns. He has been, um, writing for lots of of different media as well. One thing I didn't even realize, and you turned this up in the research for this episode, was that he wrote the episode Sarek for Star Trek The Next Generation. Mm -hmm. I don't know how I missed that. That was a good episode. It was a really good episode. That was the one, um, unless I'm mistaken, that's when Sarek comes back and we learn that he is, um, I can't remember the Vulcan term for it, but he's basically... um, he has Alzheimer's. He's yeah. he's losing his control over his emotions, and it's consuming him basically. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, that was a really well done episode, and uh, I, I had no idea that he was even involved in Star Trek at all, let alone wrote that episode. Uh, but we're gonna we're gonna stop chatting. We've talked enough. You're here to listen to Peter Beagle, and I can't blame you for that. But one thing I would like to say before we jump in is. We have been fortunate enough to be given a copy of one of Peter's new books for you all uh, to give away. Tachyon uh, Publications, who is the current publisher of The Last Unicorn and of Peter's work, uh, has graciously given us a copy of The Last Unicorn, The Lost Journey. Now, what is The Lost Journey, you might know? This is, you might be asking, I should say. This is a book that is commemorating the 50th anniversary of The Last Unicorn. It is, uh, I guess, a prequel, you could say. It's, an, it's a, just a, a brief 85-page uh, story looking at the early days of the unicorn and when she, when she was much younger. Um, and I... You know, I'm just going to read to you the little description because it's much better than I could ever do. Peter Beagle first imagined his beloved heroine when he was 23, half a decade before she sprang into the world. Now, the last unicorn's fantastical origins are recaptured in this lovely commemorative hardcover. So we've got the 85-page genesis of Beagle's story. We, we can see how she came about. It's a prequel, what have you. He has some, some writings about his early career, how the story came to be. It's a little bit of a memoir. There are some original illustrations that they've included. And there are also tributes and little essays 
Uh, I shouldn't say little, they might be long. I haven't actually read them. Uh, but essays written by Patrick Rothfuss and Carrie Vaughn. So if for no other reason um, than to get a peek at Peter's musings on his early career and Patrick Rothfuss's essay, this book, I would say, is required reading. And we have a copy of the hardcover, not only the hardcover, but it is a signed hardcover by Peter Beagle for you all to give away, uh, for, for, for us to give away to you all, I should say. If you want to know how, go to either thegbbpodcast.com or geekdad.com. Search for this episode if you found us some other way, maybe in your feed or your subscriber. Go search for Peter Beagle on thegbbpodcast.com and or geekdad.com. Find the post for this episode and there will be a giveaway widget in the post for this episode. And if you needed another reason, one more way you could get a quick uh, peek at Peter is a few years ago. I don't, I've probably mentioned this numerous times in this uh, podcast, but my daughter, when she was five, started doing little interviews with people either she admired or people who made things that she liked. And uh, this was probably four years ago now at New York Comic Con. Peter was kind enough to sit down with her, answer a few of her questions, and he actually did not treat her like a five-year-old. He treated her as a little journalist and gave her thorough, thoughtful, um, well-articulated answers. And uh, I was really, really floored by, by that exchange because not only did he come away impressed with her, but she came away even more impressed with him. She was a huge fan of The Last Unicorn. And uh, it was just a thrill for her to meet him and be able to chat with him and ask him a few questions about the book and the graphic novel, which is what she had been exposed to at that moment, and the film. Um, So I will also include the link to that cute little interview and video in our post for this episode. So he gets her interview skills from her daddy. Well, actually, I think it goes the other way around. (laughs) Can't lie. I've learned quite a few things from her. Uh, anyway, we're going to go into our episode, our, our, our interview now with Peter Beagle. Thank you guys for coming back week after week, hitting subscribe, telling other people about this show. We really do appreciate it. Let me know if there's somebody or some type of person you would like to hear on a future episode, and I will do what I can to get him or her on the show. Until next week, I am Jamie Green. You can find me at The Roarbots. You can find the show at The GBB Podcast. And I'm Sherry, and you can find me at SW Sondheimer or uh, on Twitter or irate underscore Corvus on Instagram. Thanks a lot, you guys, and see you next week. Take care. Bye. Peter, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. It is just an honor and a privilege to have you here. Well, thank you. It's been a delight to be asked. Um, I want to start off before we sort of get into the nitty gritty of, of books and your career and, and creativity mm-hmm. in general. I want to just start off, I guess, just by asking how you're doing. I, I know you've had a rough time recently, um, but I understand that there's light at the end of the tunnel. There is definitely light at the end of the tunnel, perhaps, perhaps even tomorrow <gasps> or Monday is possible. Anyway, it's even lights come in sections. I don't know how this is going to work out. Or I know how it's going to work out eventually. I just don't know the details. But I have um, I have a wonderful lawyer who's somewhere in the mess, somewhere in, in all of this, 
has become family. Yeah. And it makes a difference with a lawyer. Oh, sure. Um, and um, it's, ex it's exciting in many ways. It's a bit like going to the circus. Every time I'm in court, I get to watch my lawyer, Kathleen Hunt, go up against various lawyers or occasionally um, the, the, the gentleman himself who I'm suing. And Kathleen speaks very quietly in the most ladylike manner and gradually eviscerates him um, <laughs> to the point where, by, de by degrees, to the point the most last, last time, um, she'd ask a question and he couldn't answer. Mm. He'd completely run out of answers. He just stared at her. Um, it's, as I say, it's kind of like going to the circus. I have to be honest. I missed not, it for anything. Yeah, I'm not quite sure. That's what the response I was expecting. Most people, when they have to go to court, basically to to protect their livelihood, they don't they don't mm -hmm. call it exciting or or equate it with a circus. So um, I'm glad you're well, looking at the not, bright side of things, at least. <laughs> no, um, this is my one, literally my one experience in court. This whole bloody business, mm -hmm. and I might as well enjoy it because with any luck, it's going to be the only one. Fingers crossed. My goodness. <laughs> it's a very, it's a very Pittsburgh attitude. I say as a local. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm truly honored. Um, well, that's good news. I'm glad to hear that it, it might finally all be resolved and behind you. I know, I know it must be a huge relief to be able to sort of get on with your life again and be able to focus on things that are more important, such as writing and, 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 and celebrating the things that you, ha that you have written and love. What a concept to be actually, actually able to, to back off and breathe. Yeah. Um, because you know, it's taken up so much of my headspace and so much of my insides that um, it's tiring. Of course it is. I'm sure. And once I remember once meeting a little girl in India, she must have been five or six years old, but with a very fluent vocabulary already. And she said seriously to me that because of whatever has been going on, she was physically and emotionally exhausted. Mm. That's sort of the way I feel. Yeah, I'll bet. I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. But that's good news. So congratulations for hopefully tomorrow, Monday, sometime in the ne in the near future, having it all behind you. Well, most of it anyway. It's going to take a while. <laughs> but, but it's a long, dirty story. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, let's let's talk about you know, the, the things in your life that you wish you had more time for and that you want to celebrate. Um, I want to go back uh, quite a ways, I guess, um, to when you wrote A Fine and Private Place. You were still a teenager at the time, uh, and you had, it, you had it published not long after that. And I'm just, in retrospect, looking back on, on where you were at your life then, do you think that you had any idea what, what you were getting into or what it was like, to, what it meant to, quote-unquote, be a writer? No, of course not. Yeah. I just knew there was something I wanted very early on for a couple of reasons. One, because because reading, reading was sensual for me. I don't know how else to put it. Um, I think I've, I've said, I'm not sure whether I fell in love with words first or story first. But I know that when I was very little, I used to make up stories, but I couldn't write. I hadn't learned yet. I would make up stories and get my mother to write them down. I know that. And 
all this, I started writing a fine and private place when I was a, I guess, 18-year-old music counselor at a summer camp in upstate New York because once the campers were put to bed, there's really nothing to do in the evening unless you had a girlfriend at the girls' camp across the lake, and I didn't. Mm -hmm. But I did have... I did have a lot of typing. I had my little typewriter that my parents had given me as a going away to college gift. And I had lots and lots of paper. And there was a room at the camp where I could work by myself. And I think I wrote the first three chapters of A Fine and Private Place that summer. Hmm. What What did you expect? Like, I mean... I know this is going back a ways, but like, were you just writing for yourself at that point, or did you really think that this was something that you could do? I knew there was something I had to do. I never thought that there was anything else I could do to make it. Even then, I, ne- um, <laughs> I know that um, I was a rotten student in high school, except for English and history. My father was a history teacher, and there was. Nothing else I thought I had the talent for, and nothing else I wanted to do, really. Um, the only thing I've ever had any kind of talent for, after, other than that, was music. And I used to play at different clubs and restaurants now and again. I had a gig in Santa Cruz years later for 12 years playing in a French restaurant for... On weekends. What did you play? Saturdays and Sundays. Played guitar. Okay. I'm staring at I'm staring at across the room at my guitar guitar right now because I've been so out of practice <laughs> um, that I'm almost having to learn the instrument from scratch. Mm-hmm. Almost. And but in those days I was fluent. I was good enough to know what what really good is. I knew I wasn't at that level. Yeah. But, but I love singing. I still do. And um, that's there's a there was an English writer, very popular around the turn of the century, turn of the previous century, mm-hmm. Hilaire Belloc, whom I didn't like very much for a lot of reasons, but he did say one thing that stayed with me: it is the best trade in the world to make songs, and the second best to sing them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd go with that. Yeah. <laughs> It's sort of, so, it's sort way, of that fits yeah. into the into a lot of the tropes of fantasy writing too, with bards and 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 traveling storytellers. Yes, of course, of course. And others, I can remember, um, I can remember back in the, in the Stanford writing class, which brought me to California in 1960, where I meet, met people like um, Larry McMurtry, I think my first friend in California, the skinny kid from Texas, <laughs> and Ken Kesey, and Gurney Norman, Jim Hall, um, and any number of writers, all of whom I thought were better than I. But I remember Kesey asking me, if you could have been anything other than a writer, what do you, do you think you would have been? And I said without hesitation, I would have been one of those people probably sitting in some Mideastern marketplace with my legs crossed, um, (laughs) stopping, telling a story and stopping at a certain point and holding out my hand to say, 
if you really want to know what happened to the princess, a little silver wouldn't hurt. <laughs> it's interesting. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Incidentally, it might come in useful um, for people who still swear by King Kesey. Um, he said immediately when I asked him, I'd have been a preacher, <laughs> which tells you something. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting that you say that. I just, um, to refresh myself on The Last Unicorn, I read the graphic novel version, which I had not read before. And in your introduction, you mention that um, you started that story about unicorns for your mother's elementary school class. And when, you, very, very, yeah. and when you finished, you told them that someday you'd tell them more. I was four years old. Yeah. I remember, I, no, I don't remember that, but it's a family legend. <laughs> and, That's the best kind. And at the time, I just finished writing um, an intro or an afterword. I'm not sure how Jacob Weissman wants to set it up. There's going to be a new edition. There's been one previous, uh, pre before, of the first draft of The Last Unicorn, which I never finished. But I started it in the summer of 1962. I was sharing a cabin in um, the Berkshires, near Cheshire, Massachusetts, with my best friend, Phil Siginick. I better spell that, S-I-G-U-N-I-C-K, who I've known since we were five. Um, he was always the painter, the same way I was always the writer. And we decided to spend the summer together with him painting and me working in the new book. I published I published A Fine and Private Place, and I spent the year at Stanford writing a really bad novel with good bits in it. But there is, it will not be published. It will be, with any luck, buried with me. <laughs> um, but... I had no idea what I'd do next or what kind of writer I was, literally, because that second one isn't a fantasy at all, um, except in my imagining what an adult relationship must be like. And so Phil would go out every day um, painting and sketching and might not come home till late afternoon. And I wanted to show him that I'd been working too. So I tried a couple of stories neither of which went anywhere. And then I literally came up with a line, the unicorn lived in a lilac wood and she lived all alone. Uh-huh. <laughs> like now what? <laughs> <laughs> and that was that summer. Um, just, just putting the beginning piece by piece, line by line, telling myself a story, which is all I ever do. But it's very different, as you'll see when it comes out. It's very different from the last unicorn everybody knows. For instance, there's no Schmendrick, and there's no Molly, which amazes me because Molly's the heart of the book. Mm. And But it didn't come up, up with her until a good bit later. There is, um, there is a demon, a two-headed demon. And the two heads talk to each other a lot and snark at each other. And that sounds very like the way Phil and I still talk <laughs> after all these years. I wanted to ask about that because that book comes out later this year, or in the fall, and 
I know that it was your first draft. How how much work did you do on it? I guess to, to quote unquote clean it up so you could publish it, or did you do anything to it? I quit it at the end of that summer. Basically, I quit because yeah. you know I married my first wife, and there were children involved, and I had to learn how to put bread on the table. So there just wasn't time for and for the last unicorn. And frankly, I was tired of it. I was just as glad not to be working on it, but I put it away. Because one of the basic rules of being a professional writer is that you never throw anything out, <laughs> ever. You never know. And so I stuck it down in a drawer, and I learned to do magazine work and book reviews and anything I was asked to do. That's the second rule of being a freelance. Um, it used to be said, if they ask you, you can write a song. <laughs> <laughs> um, meaning get the job first then yep. figure out how you do it. Exactly. Which is literally true in one special case, Irving Berlin, originally this fourth grade dropout um, whose idea of a real career was being a singing waiter down Lower East Side. And um, he began to write lyrics for other people's music and one lyric caught the attention of a publisher, and as he was being led across the hall, you know, to meet the publisher properly, you know, the person taking him there asked him, "By the way, you do have a melody for this?" <laughs> oh, yeah, right, right, of, of course. course, of course, I do. And Berlin, <laughs> and Berlin improvised a melody and sold the song. <laughs> and he still was a lyricist more than a composer for some time afterward. But it's like that: get the job first. Yeah. You you say something that you know one of the thing the first rules of being a professional writer is that you don't throw anything away and that's why we obviously still have your first draft of of the last unicorn. Um, I I think though if you ask if you were to ask most writers uh, to go back and read their first draft of anything, let alone a book that's become a classic, they would probably cringe at how it began. But you're publishing yours, so I have to assume that that means you're okay with it. I'm okay with it. It's not as it's not as good as the published version, but looking back over it, oh, I didn't remember that. Oh, I forgot I put that in. Oh, that's not that bad. It's like that. It's, it's like that. No, I can live with it. And as I say, I wrote an afterword for it. And for me, for me, it's a special piece of my own life because of that summer. You know, Phil and I would work during the day. And we'd make dinner. Um, we just we just called it the good shit, meaning what's in the fridge. Mm -hmm. And we'd throw everything together, and we'd make dinner. And then we'd play our guitars in the evening. We'd learn the guitar about the same time, and we'd sit up to all hours, because our par our parents weren't with with us. And it used to be that we'd be playing at rehearsing or not rehearsing, just playing at one house or another until one set of parents or another threw us out, <laughs> usually at two in the morning. But now we could stay up till two in the morning, playing all night if we wanted. Um, so I remember that fondly. I remember taking the day off sometimes and going off in the scooters, exploring New England. We made it as far as Albany because I had a, an old friend still living there who I'd known at the University of Pittsburgh. And and I remember that summer very fondly um, for a lot of reasons. And 
somewhere in there, I got the beginning of The Last Unicorn. But once we got back to New York, I pretty much dropped it, partly because I knew I was going to get married and I only had to think about raising children. And part of it was that I had no clue what came next. Even now, when I look back on writing the published version, I only remember as a bloody nightmare, um, <laughs> with except the song lyrics, the, the incidental songs. I like those. That's fun. I love writing songs. Beyond that, I was so glad when it was over. <laughs> the only person, the only person who remembers that best possibly is Jürgen Schweier, um, who's my German translator. Jürgen translated the Last Unicorn. There was a joke between us at the time because he was a young Van de Vogel, a wandering poet, doing odd jobs, um, teaching a little German here and there, and babysitting my kids. And I can remember more than once saying to him, Jürgen, if I ever get this damn thing finished, if it ever actually gets published, and somebody should want to translate it into German, you could do that. You know it as well as I do, which is almost literally true. <laughs> and he did... And he did translate it. And it started him on his own career as a writer and publisher, boutique, boutique publisher in a small way. And um, and we've stayed friends all this time. All, and that goes all the way back to the 1960s in Santa Cruz. So now, obviously, you know, it's, it's been published in so many forms once it once it was finished. Um, it's been prose, it's been a comic, it's been an animated film. Um, do you have a favorite? Well, finally, of course, finally the book um, comes comes back to that hard, as hard as I worked on it. But there are things in the movie that I'm very fond of. Um, Partly because um, I became good friends with Christopher Lee, playing King Haggard, and and with um, I did have a friend who's gone now, so it's Chris, um, Rene Aubergenois, who always steals the scenes playing the skeleton, mm-hmm. and even now, tired as the movie of the movie as I can get, I sometimes stick my head in to the theater quietly that scene, just whispering. Go, Rene. <laughs> He's truly the b- best actor I know. Yeah. And um, there are a lot of fond memories and bad ones as well connected with the movie. So it's impossible, you know, to... Well, put it like this. Um, Christopher did The Last Unicorn in German, again, when it was translated. German being one of the five or six languages he spoke. And we were on stage, we were not on stage, we were on television. I think it was Austrian television, but I could be wrong. And Christopher was saying in that grand Christopher Lee voice that you can't keep imitating after, you, after you've been around him for 15 minutes. Oh yes, I simply couldn't resist a chance to play King Haggard one more time, even in another language, because let's face it, it's the closest they'll ever let me get to playing King Lear. Mm. <laughs> and my jaw, my jaw dropped, and they swung the camera toward me to get my reaction. And Christopher looked across the studio at me and winked. I remember that. 
<laughs> so, um, but is, is there a that's about is, is there a, a medium? You know, whether or not it's your favorite, is there a one of those versions or a medium that the story has been told in that you think is best suited? to tell the story to a new audience, whether, you know, whether it's a kid or, or an adult encountering it for the first time? I think finally the movie, of course, because the movie, the movie get, built up an audience I hadn't bargained for at all um, in terms of the, the things, the letters people write to me, the things I hear how, um, for one reason or another, you know, that movie changed my life. I couldn't stop watching it. There's, I have. I was talking last night to a dear friend in Los Angeles who feels exactly that way about it. And inevitably, of course, that built the biggest audience. And so I'm very grateful to it, certainly. Yeah. Beyond that, um, beyond that, I don't know. There was always talk, which never came to anything, about making a, a stage musical. I was going to ask you about of the that. Last it's never come to anything for that's part of it may yet mm-hmm. but that's part of the the tangle yeah of the rights and i grew up in new york city and i'm one of those i was raised on musicals and i'm one of those people who remembers not only all the songs but all the songs that were cut out of the show before it ever got to new york that mm-hmm. kind of thing yeah absolute trash memory and my heroes were always the the great songwriters like Lorenz Hart and Dorothy Fields and Johnny Mercer, certainly. I remember, I remember once going to hear music, a uh, Mercer actually lecturing about songwriting. And he was asked at one point, because he, had, he was a lyricist, but even though he couldn't write music, he hadn't written the music or come up with the music for songs of his that became hits. And he was asked about the difference between writing words and writing music. And Mercer was silent for a little bit, and he said, I think it takes more talent to write music, but it takes more courage to write words. Mm-hmm. So because um, music goes straight to the heart, that's what it's for. And words have such a long way to go before they get there. And I knew exactly what he meant. And speaking of somebody who loves to write songs, I did know. Yeah. Um, because words have to go through your training, your um, your scholarship, or your, your beliefs. Just a, a long way to go before they, they reach the heart. But to this day, to this day there are songs that, that make me cry. Yeah. Old people cry more, old men cry more than they did when they were boys. <laughs> I think I think it could make an amazing musical. Um, so I do hope that something eventually starts moving with that because I know that was rumored or people were talking a few years back, and I know that it's tied up with all the legal issues right now. But I think that uh, done done correctly, I think it could make a really really great show. Well, I've always wanted to to write the lyrics for a musical. Beyond that, I can't say. Yeah. But of course. Um, of course, I you know, listen to anything Stephen Sondheim's written or anything he says about writing musicals. And um, as I say, there were just, I remember too many songs. I wake up, wake up with them. Um, 
not necessarily good songs either. <laughs> but that's in my head, earworms, as they call them, and then I have to start a backfire. The only way to get rid of an earworm is to think of another song. That's right. <laughs> Push it out with something else. Do you like listen that, to literally. music while you're writing? No, because then I start listening to music. <laughs> the, on, the only thing I listen to at all when I'm writing, oddly enough, baseball broadcast, baseball games, because that was, I started listening to baseball very early when I was home. I was always homesick with something. So I listened to ball games on the radio, and they became sort of the, the wallpaper of my life, if you like. I, fast, I visualized the games and what the players looked like. This is way before television. And I still listen to baseball on the radio. I actually still listen to baseball on the radio, too. <laughs> well, the, the, um, I once got to spend an afternoon because we had a friend in common in the color, color man's booth at a Giants baseball game, the, the, um, the um, San Diego Padres had come to town, and I spent the afternoon in the booth with Jerry Coleman, who was broadcasting for the Padres in those days, and I had seen him as a ball player when I was 10 years old. He was delightful and charming, and I told him, I became interested in baseball when I was 10 years old of following the New York Yankees at that time. So I remember everybody on that team, every single player, even for one, anybody who came through for 10 minutes <laughs> who played on that, those, that team. And Coleman said, no, you don't. You can't. There were so many. And I started listening to them from the top down. And Coleman went mad. <laughs> Hank Workman. Hank Workman was with us for a week, less than a week. Nobody remembers Hank Workman. Carlos Marshall, Clarence Marshall, even his mother doesn't remember Clarence Marshall. <laughs> and I went down the whole the list of every player on that team. I couldn't have done it next year. Yeah. I certainly couldn't do it now. But when you're 10, these things are important. You still listen to games now when you write? I still do. Um do you listen to, to Not, like live games now, or do you listen to old games that you can find? Because a lot of them have been recorded, and you can just listen to like old games on the I, internet. I know that. Yeah. I know that, but I don't even have. I haven't even found those. I listen. Um, just there are a lot of things idea. on the internet. Yeah, I have. I don't have television. I do have a laptop. It's amazing what you can find on a laptop <laughs> if you work at it. <laughs> What a, so things... what a glorious time to be alive, right? When everything <laughs> is just a few taps of the keyboard away. Well, I feel that I've, I've lived into a golden age of guitar makers and golden age of cooking because I discovered cooking in midlife. And a golden age of mystery novels, hmm. which I still want to write one. Um, because there's wonderful writers and doing mysteries and doing young adult novels, children's books. I do think there are altogether too many people writing fantasy, but that's just me being snarky. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sure you have been asked this, this a thousand times, so do forgive me, but 
in addition to the last unicorn, I mean, you've come back to unicorns several times in your career, including your most recent novel, which was uh, in Calabria. So the the logical question here is why unicorns? What what do they say to you that 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 they become your muse and you have to put them into your stories? I don't know. I can't tell you. I know that um, there are stories I wrote simply because everybody knows the image of the beautiful white western unicorn that I used myself in The Last Unicorn. But very few people have written stories about the, the Asian unicorn, let alone the the Karkadan, the Mid-Eastern unicorn. is a totally different creature. Um, Marco Polo writes in his journal um, that he's finally, finally actually seen a real unicorn. And he's a little wistful. He said, I didn't imagine that unicorns would be so ugly. <laughs> and then you realize that he's probably seen a rhinoceros. Yeah. <laughs> and like, I think that Carcadon very much derives from the rhinoceros. And I want to do something with that. But in Calabria, I have to tell you, um, I can't explain. I don't know where it came from or why I began writing it. Um, only that I can remember passing through Calabria when I was about 21 years old on a motor scooter, thinking this is a beautiful country. I do hope they've got a gas station somewhere. <laughs> and that was about it. But when that story began to take shape in my head, it insisted on taking place in Italy and in Calabria. I can't tell you why. And I think of it as a gift from somewhere because when you write a book, I'm sure, I'm sure it's true for songwriters or musicians, but when you write a, a novel, you know you always get something screwed up. I always learned only by learn, doing things wrong. I even wrote a song about that. And so I'm, I'm used to that. Okay, I should have done that paragraph a second time. Or I always meant to go back and redo that scene a little bit. Well can't be helped. But I keep looking at in Calabria, and I can't find anything wrong with it. Um, that almost almost worries me. It must be there. I just can't see it. it it's, um, I have a favorite old album that still matters to me because it's two great guitarists playing together. I think it's one a Grammy. Chet Atkins and Merle Travis. You know, just the two of them. No backup, no nothing. Just the two of them playing old songs and a couple of standards, new ones, and talking about how they first heard each other's work. And it's a marvelous album. And as it fades out in the last cut, you hear Travis murmur, mistakes and all. Hmm. I, had, I couldn't hear one, but Travis could. Like that. Yeah. Same way with books. But in Calabria, I'll be damned. Maybe I got that one right. <laughs> You mentioned that there are a lot of people, um, there's a lot of fantasy out there and a lot of young adult fantasy, middle grade fantasy. Um, something I've noticed since my kids are getting to be that age is that uh, authors are tending to inject some creepiness or even a, a horror aspect into them. Um, and for me personally, The Last Unicorn is the first book I remember scaring me a little bit. 
That's <laughs> um, <Glad you're> here. <laughs> what why do you think that's something that's important as an element to children's books? Oh, it's always been, you know, old books even that um, children like being scared. You know, as long as your parents are there and it comes out all right. Um, the just as as long as it comes out all right. Um, <laughs> I remember once um, seeing a play um, in New York called The Solid Gold Cadillac. And there was a, actually the only play I know that had a, a commentary. Um, every once in a while, um, the old comedian, Fred Allen, would come in over the PA system to um, comment on what was going on on stage. And at one point, he says to the audience, looks bad, doesn't it? Looks, looks scary right now. So maybe it's not going to come out all right. But do not fret. Do not worry. I promise you, if this play does not come out all right, we will give all of you your money back. And there is a fat chance of that. <laughs> I do remember that. Um, and... So it's it's like that. I I've learned you have to keep it in certain proportions. That is, Dracula, the original, is a very scary novel. It is. But but Dracula himself very rarely makes an appearance. That's what's scary. That he's off stage, thinking, planning, and you know what it is. Only that he will be back. And. These days, so often, the horror is on stage almost from the beginning. And, yeah, okay, okay, but um, now you have to keep topping yourself. Um, and, no, it's, it's, it's more, more fun That's for both one the of the reader reasons, and the writer. That's one of the reasons The Shining always scared me so much, is because the whole book is waiting for something horrible to happen. The, mm -hmm. the suspense is worse than the actual horrible event at the end. <laughs> and, the, and the best of Stephen King, during the, mm -hmm. the best of his work, he knows that. Mm -hmm. He knows that. Sometimes I think he's working on word count, um, <laughs> or he has a, a debt to his publisher. But at his best, he knows that basic rule. Mm -hmm. Yeah, his horror is more suspense. It's like exactly what you said. It's, oh. it's, it's waiting, the, the, the anticipation of something unknown that could be terrifying. My favorite film producer in some ways is a guy who never had more than a buck and a half budget to work on in the 1930s and 40s. His name is Val Luton. Worked for RKO mostly. And literally, um, he made horror out of shadows. As he said, and I'm quoting him, the monster is in the end. The monster is an actor in a monster suit. The shadow is real. And so he made movies like um, Cat People. Hmm. And Cat People, the original, 1944 or so, was made with second grade actors. He always spent, his, if he had the choice of the budget, he spent the money on the screenplay. And excellent screenplay, as I said, second-rate actors, dollar ninety-eight special effects. <laughs> but he knew what to do with his dollar ninety-eight. There's a the main main character is a woman 
from Central Europe, from a village where she's deeply afraid that women under certain kinds of stress or tension, whether it's sexual or fear, turn into panthers. She's so much afraid of that that um, but it's not, this is 1944, but basically she can't have sex with her husband. She's afraid of what she'll turn into. Who's very, um, he's very kind and understanding, but eventually he begins seeing. Back when the word dating just meant dating, a woman has his office where he works and his wife finds out about it. And one evening when the woman herself comes alone out of work, I'm heading home. The wife stalks her. And Luton's director cuts back and forth between two pairs of heels, one following the other. You don't see, you see them, but you don't, all you hear is the clicking yeah. of heels on the sidewalk. And if you remember, the woman in front begins to be aware that she's being followed, and she begins to speed up. And the, the heels following her um, speed up also. And at a certain point, for those following heels, just stop. As though they might have turned into paws. You don't know. Neither is the wife. When she looks back, she can't see anything. But she hurries on now. She's almost running. And then there's some explosive hiss. You know, like a great cat leaping. And I have seen people in a theater, people who know better, almost come out of their seats with that hiss. <laughs> and then the... the camera widens, the lens widens, and you see it's a, a bus pulling up, rescue, hitting the hydraulic, hydraulic brakes. Yeah. And, and the woman being stalked leaps onto it and is carried away. The camera shoot, cuts back down the street. You don't see anything. You don't see a panther. You just see a bush waving as though, as though something angry, pissed off, something has missed its kill, has gone in there. And that's that's how it's done. Really, that's, that's how it's done. <laughs> and that's how it's done on a dollar ninety-eight. Yeah, because that was all Leighton had to work with. That's brilliant. And when he's when he's given a title to work with for a movie, I walked with a zombie. Well, what he does is take basically take the plot of Jane Eyre and transfer tra- transfer it to. Haiti, and work with that sort of mythology. And again, again, it's a dollar ninety-eight, and the only time you see a zombie is a very, very tall black man whose eyes are just not there. He's, he's just, he's a servant. Um, he's under under a spell. Maybe he'll come out of it. Maybe he won't. But he's not there to to eat your brains. He's just there to serve whoever has made him a zombie. And, and as I say, it's the, basically the plot of Jane Eyre. But it works. <laughs> Corny title or not, it works. That's great. And I learned a lot from those movies. I really did. <laughs> yeah, the I... same way, I, when I was 12, I was terrified of, by a, a movie called The Thing from Another World. Up to the point where you actually see the thing, the monster from outer space. 
And for God's, for God's sake, it's just James Arness in a thing suit. <laughs> and you lose it right there. As long as you couldn't see more than a, get a glimpse of the monster. Um, it was really, really scary. Yeah. But the mo only movie that scares me truly today is a classic that where well, the monster is a human being. That's um, Night of the Hunter. Hmm. And that scared me so much when I saw it as a teenager that I didn't watch it for 40 years and then I had to have somebody with me. <laughs> the and this it bombed at the time. It's considered one of the 100 American classics. The Exorcist is what did it for me. I, I was probably 11 years old and I was home alone watching it and I, I couldn't sleep for mm -hmm. like a week because it just scared scared the living daylights out of me. I'm terrified yeah. of The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> Because of the witch? Nope. I don't know why. I just am. It's it's a like you were talking about. It's this just this visceral reaction to this movie that it freaks me out. My kids you haven't know, seen once, it yet because <laughs> I'm scared of it. <laughs> I once I once heard um, Margaret Hamilton, who's a very intelligent woman, really had been a school teacher, saying, you know, movies are are filmed not consecutively, but Different, different scenes depending on everybody's schedule. So, so she said, I never saw myself, really, as the witch. And when I did see myself, I was horrified. I said, I wouldn't let my grandchildren go to see it. Yeah. <laughs> well, didn't she, after that movie, like her life was basically ruined because she couldn't go anywhere. Everybody just knew her as the witch and kids would scream, go running from her. She wasn't even green by name. No, she wasn't. She just looked like a normal woman, and but still, like people were terrified of her. Well, I, I, actually, in the '60s, I saw her in a musical um, with Donna Michi and Elaine Stritch, and um, and she actually sang. Hmm. No, I, I don't know that her life was ruined. She. Yeah. I, re I just to remember hearing. I remember hearing something like you know she. She had a rough go of it. Maybe it was just the first couple of years after The Wizard of Oz and then it turned up from there, but I just remember hearing something about that. I, I believe that, sorry, certainly. Yeah. Entirely likely. I wanted to go back to something you said earlier. You, you were talking about, um, you know, how the very first line of The, the Last Unicorn just, just came to you and that way you, it just, you knew it right there. That's how the story began. And you were in Italy and in Calabria just, just came to you. The story just, just appeared in your head. Is that is that par for the course for you? Is that how your ideas come, or or are there other times when you just sit staring at a blank page? That happens too, but what certainly a lot of the time. But I was a little boy, very shy, um, who hid under the stairs at the apartment building where I grew up, and told myself stories, and basically that's what I'm still doing. Um, I make a joke about this. I'm talking, speaking to audiences. I hear voices in my head, but that's all right because I have a license to hear voices. <laughs> you know, it, it, I'm a writer. If I did not have a license, they'd put me away somewhere the way they do. But if I don't hear those voices, I'm in trouble. Yeah. A woman once called it, and she tapped my head and said rather sadly, all those people up in there partying and I'm not invited. <laughs> and I told her they don't always they don't always invite me. I have to sneak around back and, and eavesdrop. But as co as cute or cozy as that sounds, is perfectly true. I start with voices, 
um, not scenery, um, not, but hearing the voice, like hearing the voice of somebody who might live in in Calabria, which I knew was the poorest part of Italy. I think it still is. But start with that. You know, started with hearing the voice of you know the middle-aged farmer um, who lives alone with his animals and his crops and his memories and his poetry. And that was easy enough to imagine. And I went from there. Um, I don't think I could have written that book when I was younger. But there, that's one thing, of course. Um, you have to age into certain stories. There were things I could do, like a fine and private place, because that's the Bronx. I grew, I grew up a block and a half away from a very famous cemetery, Woodlawn, which is about half the size of Central Park. And everybody's buried there one time or another, um, from Herman Melville to Babe Ruth to um, several famous gangsters to both Miles Davis and Duke Ellington. And so I could never be scared of cemeteries. It was the, not, none of my friends could either. It was the greenest place in our, in our part of New York. And we'd play there, sometimes go for walks, trying to jump out from behind tombs and scare each other. But we never could. And so that was that was easy in that sense. And the voices in A Fine and Private Place are so much the voices I heard under my window. But it was the first time I ever tried writing to those voices. Hmm. Up till then, I'd been writing stories largely based on mythology one way or another. So I say you, I certainly couldn't have written Last Unicorn. Yeah. You said something very interesting, that some of these stories you have to age into, you know, you with either life experience or just writing experience. You know, there, there are stories and there were books that you've written that you could not have done earlier in your career. And you look at... Well, Summer, Summer Long is a classic example. Mm -hmm. so Summer Long is set on an island very much like the island off Seattle that I lived in for six years, um, Bainbridge Island. But but no, I, I couldn't have written yeah. that particular story and, about older people. And especially since you mentioned you look at In Calabria and you can't find fault with it. it so many people look at you or think of you or think of your career and it begins and it ends with the last unicorn for better or for worse of course and that was one of that was your third book that was very early in your career and you've written dozens of books and stories since then does does it ever grow tiring for you as much as you you love the story and as much as you hold it dear do you do you ever get frustrated that that people don't realize you have an entire catalog an entire career beyond that book no, because I know too many people, really good writers, as good as I am, however you measure these things, who've never had that particular stroke of luck, that particular moment of catching lightning in the bottle. How can you know? It's, mm -hmm. um, it's like um, I was friends in his last years with Edgar Pangborn. I, read, I knew him I knew when I was 13 as a fantasy writer. But I didn't meet him until I was a grown man, and I'm, I found a book of his that's not a fantasy. There's a novel of his called, um, 
Wilderness of Spring takes place in colonial New York, the 18th century, 17th century. And it just knocked me over. I told Edgar that. I wrote to him about it. I always knew, knew you were good. I just never knew you were that good. <laughs> and when I met him, he told me of all my books, that's the one that got trashed by every single critic. It was out of print in a month, never went into paperback. And I, I stared. I've, I've had at least one bad review with everything I've written. But how the hell do you manage to live when the entire critical establishment jumps on you? What did you do? And Edgar said, well, it's been a long time. But as best I can remember, I got very drunk one night and sat up playing the piano. He'd gone to Harvard at 15 as a music student. Um, he wrote music. Since I sat up all night playing the piano, I think it was Bach, but I can't be sure now. And then the next day I started writing another book because that's what you do. And some of Edgar's books are still in print, I suppose. Many aren't. But he was a really good writer, one of the best. And only a handful of people who know science fiction, fantasy, really know even a handful of his stories. But, um, no, I know exactly how lucky I've been. Yeah. I really do. And it's, I've, I have had people die on you. That's one thing with, you're 79, you lose people. Yeah. And I had a dear friend in Santa Cruz for 50 years. A very good novelist. One of the, truly, a really good one. Um, who did things I couldn't have written. It wasn't a fantasy writer. But he's known, he'll be remembered for one book because his wife, who was Japanese-American, had been one of the children swept up in the internment camps of, of the World War II when she was seven years old. Mm -hmm. And basically, with her help, he wrote the book um, Farewell to Manzanar, which is Jeannie's story, as he said, um, I did most of the writing, but it's her life. Mm -hmm. It's what happened to her. And that book will never be out of print. As far as I can figure, it's re required reading in high schools and colleges. And as he said, we talked about that compared to The Last Unicorn. I said, you'll probably always be known for The Last Unicorn, and Farewell to Manzanar has become the family franchise and probably always will be. So I don't know how many people would ever know my work. And I'm, I have all of his books. I know how good he was. And that's what happens. That's simply what happens. There's no justice to it or anything like that. But you've come to... It sounds like you, you're you're at peace with that because you recognize the... the I don't want to call it luck. It wasn't luck. It was your skill. But the the weird fortuitousness that made that book become beloved for so many and you know so many writers are out there for years and years and years and they never have that that one book that's the only way I can think of it is fortuitousness yeah. but I'm very clear about that because I know who's out there I know who's been out there I know who's been lucky and who hasn't been so I'm really very conscious of of my own luck yeah for all the 
for all the difficulties, for all the things that happen during a life, the things I'm dealing with now, the fact that um, physically nothing's falling apart, nothing's rotting away or dropping off. I know how lucky I've been just to have my health. Mm-hmm. And and I know, I know more than anything how lucky I've been with friends, with people who have been there for me, people who to this day, somehow, I know I can call at two in the morning if I have to, ranging from the the young woman in Texas who, uh, whom I first met at a Renaissance fair and, and talked to all day, who decided that she wasn't at all crazy about the father she'd been assigned at birth, and now she reserved the right to choose her own. Mm. So I've been popping her ever since, Aww. and and that's who calls me on Father's Day. Speaking and of which, I'm supposed to tell you that Kai Morrison's sister says hello. <laughs> oh, how, how very sweet of her. <laughs> <laughs> and if, and if you are in contact with her, tell her I'd love to hear. I don't have her her brother's address or email address or phone number. I'd love to have that. Thank you. I'll get it. You she's would. my she's my best friend. She's my Steve. I'm her Bucky. So she told me to say hello to you. Well, please, by all means, thank her for me and tell her I'd love to be in touch with her brother. I will. <laughs> are Are you still working on the um, the full length sequel to Two Hearts? I am working on it still, stalled on it at the moment, going round and round with it. Okay, where do I, go, where do I get off the tracks? Right. And there's, there's a place, because it's told by Suze, who's now 17. And I'm okay with Suze's voice, but where do I lose the, the locale? The, um, I'll know it when I find it. But it's been, uh, I've looked for excuses, writers stall. You know, look to, well, I have to write this thing or I have to do this interview, or I have to you know, write this thing for Jacob, my publisher. I'm told that Hemingway, when he couldn't find any other way to stall, used to sharpen every pencil in the house. And if he didn't have pencils, he'd go and get some. And I know that, um, you know, I keep looking at that manuscript, I'm probably, probably I'd say, somewhere between a third and a half of the way through. Hmm. And I'd love to have it finished by the end of the year, but I'm not promising. I have to go to the Czech Republic in a couple of weeks um, because in Calabria, won an award as best translated foreign novel. Well, congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. It's a great great excuse to stall. Yeah. (laughs) And go to the Czech Republic, which is beautiful. I know. I've never been there. Oh, it's lovely. I love it there. Um, we Something that surprised me as I was reading up on you is that um, you wrote for Star Trek The Next Generation. You did the episode Sarek. Um, yes. How did that come about? Like, how did, how did they bring you in for that? Normally, it's a house-written series. always was. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, there was a gap. I've never really known why. But they needed, you know, um, sort of freelance scripts. Okay. And a friend of mine, Diana Gallagher, 
whom I haven't seen for years and who does not remember doing that, called me to let me know that there was a gap. There was a space. And if I hustled my elderly ass down to Los Angeles, I could maybe talk them into accepting a story from me. And it was a hard winter, and I didn't know what the hell I was going to do if I didn't sell something. These things happen. So I shot the wad on a first-class flight to um, Los Angeles on the theory that if I got the gig, I'd want a couple of drinks on the way back to celebrate. And if I didn't get the gig, I was going to need the drinks. <laughs> and my oldest daughter and her husband were then living near, near Paramount um, in Glendale, which is near, nearby. And my son-in-law met me at the airport, picked me up, drove me to Paramount, and I told him, come back in about an hour and a half. Um, if I get the gig, you'll know. Um, you'll know before I even reach the van. And I went there and met these, um, the story people, the editors and producers. But most importantly, I met Melinda Snodgrass, who was the story editor. Mm -hmm. And I told them a story. This is really all I've ever known how to do. And I knew I had something going. And Melinda told me about it later on, confirming it. When they stopped taking notes and just listened. I have a feeling I'm onto something. I know that. You can tell that sitting in the marketplace. And I did get the gig, and they walked me out towards the van where my son-in-law was already waiting. And back then, I don't know, if it's, don't know if it's still true, but back then, the more power you had in Hollywood, the scruffier you dressed. <laughs> and, um, and Michael Piller... And the others were wearing clearly what um, was closest to the bed when they got up in the morning. And Melinda was wearing a ratty little leather dress. And my son-in-law picked me up and we started driving off. And he looked at me and said, I turned my back on you for an hour and a half. And you pick up with three janitors and the cleaning lady. <laughs> but, I, but I bought dinner that night. <laughs> my God, I made it. And I made it. And... Thanks to Melinda, who protected the script the best way they, she could. Most of that, that you can see in reruns, most of that's my writing, that's actually, great. which is not, not usual. I'm very proud of the, the climactic scene, the mind-melding scene mm -hmm. uh, between Sarek and Picard, because um, Patrick Stewart is a hell of an actor. Oh, yeah. You know, my, uh, with all due respect, there's no comparison between him and William Shatner. And I really did want him to, to have a scene, to be able to say something besides make it so. <laughs> yeah. So I am very proud of that one. As you should be. That's one of the best episodes. I mean, and, and you're absolutely right. It's for that, that scene with the two of them. And it's just, just amazing. I mean, in, in a show that had so many remarkable episodes, that one does stand out. I know. I know. I'm very grateful for it. But um, if you ever get a chance, just quickly, because then the old man's got to pee and get on the road. <laughs> but all gentlemen have to think about these things. <laughs> but if you ever get a chance, um, see if you can find a television movie from 1977 called The Greatest Thing That Almost Happened. 
It's large, based on a novel by Don Robertson, dead now, and it's largely a black cast. It was my one experience of working with James Earl Jones, and and he gave me my great moment in show business um, because it wasn't until my son and I, we came down for it, he was 15 at the time, and it wasn't until we were introduced that I realized that Jones had been expecting a black writer. Yeah. And and I grew up around black people. I roomed with black people. I married one. And um, I, Jones did a kind of double take that turned into a triple take. And then he got up and took my hand. And in front of my kid, he said, I don't know where you get it or why you should be able to do it, but you write black dialogue like a poet. <laughs> Okay, God, just come and get me right now. <laughs> That's it. Everything's going to be downhill from here. I won't even go home to change. <laughs> well, I'm now, I'm definitely going to go find that now. I'm going to go dig it up. It's got to be somewhere. <laughs> that um, that is my great moment in show business. Um, it even surpasses um, getting kissed by Lieutenant Uhura, but that's another story. <laughs> This has been the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com and on Twitter and Facebook at thegbbpodcast. Thanks again for subscribing and listening. We really do appreciate it. And until next week, I am Jamie Green, and you can find me at The Roarbots. Take care. Take care.